This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein, Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program, and I'm here on Zoom with my friend and co-host, Ann Greenhall. How are you today, Ann? I'm good, Jeff. Nice to see you and be Hi. here. Nice to, nice to see you and, and be here with you as well. Our third host, Mike Yuseem, is off this week. Uh, Mike, I believe, is, is in a board meeting. I think that's what he's up to right now. So just a note to all of our listeners before we start that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday, 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM channel 132. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. So, Anne, we're going to take on some of the bigger topics today. And, and really think about the system of democratic capitalism. Yeah. Um, we would normally, you know, maybe engage in, in a little bit of, of banter here at the beginning of the show, but I think my instinct is that we're going to get right into our conversation uh, unless there is something burning in Green Hall that you <laughs> feel like we need to talk about before we get going. Jeff, I think getting right into the conversation is wise. Uh, otherwise, we could get distracted by talking about the debates or the Eagles win last night. <laughs> uh, see, I, I see what you're doing there. You're just you're, you're throwing you're sprinkling the seeds out just a tiny bit. Right? We'll uh, we'll just say that there are all sorts of different kinds of resilience on display. Last exactly. Night. How's that? So. All right. Well, then what we're going to do, today's guest uh, has written a book. It's receiving wide acclaim, named a top 10 business and economics book for the fall by Publishers Weekly. And it was nominated for the next Big Idea Club, which is curated by uh, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, Malcolm Gladwell, and our good buddy, Wharton's own Adam Grant. And so we are delighted to welcome Roger Martin to the program. Roger, how are you today? I am. I'm just terrific, and and I will attempt to not do a Daniel Jones and a trip over my own feet uh, on his way to touchdown. How's that? <laughs> that was pretty much widely cited as the thing uh, he would be remembered for, and that we'd all keep seeing today, right? <laughs> so sometimes our momentum gets the best of us, right? Uh, evidently, evidently. All right. Well, and and that could be a metaphor for the conversation we're going to have. Um, Roger, uh, your book is called When More is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. Um, and, and in the book, you are arguing that America's, th- this obsession is both driving inequality and making our economy more fragile. Um, before we get into maybe the, the, the depth of the book, Roger, I I wanted to just step back a second and ask a little about you. Um, And actually, since I know a few things about you and you know much about you, let me tell our (laughs) listeners a couple more things. And um, I've got a question to get us started. So you are Roger Martin, 
Professor Emeritus at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. You served uh, as Dean from 1998 to 2013 and as Institute Director of the Martin Prosperity Institute from 2013 to 2019. You were named Global Dean of the Year, also have been named the world's number one management thinker, and you've published 11 previous books. So, Roger, <laughs> if you think back to the Roger Martin who uh, was in, you know, entering high school, thinking about uh, your undergraduate education, at that point in your life, did you were you saying to yourself, you know, one day, I'd like to be one of the top management thinkers in the world. What 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 did a young Roger Martin think about the career that might unfold? Probably the short answer is no. Uh, just by way of background, I grew up in a town of fifty people uh, in the middle of farm country. Uh, it was a little town, so we weren't farmers, but uh, uh, my grandfather owned the general store across the street, and. When I was getting ready to figure out where I uh, went to, would go to university, I went to see Mr. Ron Conlon, who is the guidance counselor at our high school. I went to regional high school and I asked him, Mr. Conlon, where should I go to university? And Mr. Conlon said, and I will never forget these words, well, Roger, it doesn't really matter. They're pretty much all the same. So I was thinking, like you're a guidance counselor. That is, I, I do not believe that is your, your job to say it doesn't matter. Um, and uh, now maybe in fairness to him, I was, I was a, an athlete. I was a jock and played every sport known mankind. I was the basketball player of the year, uh, athlete of the year, my senior year, all that kind of stuff. So maybe Mr. Conlon just knew me as a jock and assumed that I was a dumb jock. And so maybe I should go, you know, to the local community college or something. But at that moment in time, that right, I, I can I can remember it vividly. I'll never forget it. And I said, I said to myself, I'm gonna show Mr. Conlon they're not all the same. I'm gonna go to, and then I had to have something that represented not sameness. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so to, to, to be, to be mad at this guy in my head, I wasn't mad at, at him verbally. I was mad at him and I had, I had to come up with something that was definitively not the same. And because I came from a town of 50, I actually, to be honest, wouldn't have said, I'll go to Wharton because I'd never heard of Wharton. Mm -hmm. uh, I would, would not have said, I'll go to Caltech because I hadn't ever heard of Caltech, but I'd heard of Harvard. Uh, and I knew it wasn't the same as the local community college. And so mm -hmm. I said, I'm going to show Mr. Conlon, I'm going to go to Harvard. Uh, and so, so far from thinking I was going to be a leading management thinker, I just, uh, I was, I was just thinking about this guy was dissing me and treating me as irrelevant. And I will show him that I am not completely and utterly ir ir irrelevant and disable. And so that's, that, <laughs> that's what I was thinking about coming out of high school. It's the, the competitive edge of the athlete. We can, uh, we can certainly see coming out. There was a bit of that, I must, I must say. I wasn't having it. And, and Roger, when, uh, when you went to university then, um, you're at Harvard, what were you studying? I was studying economics. Uh, I, I, I sort of fell in love with 
uh, economics. I thought I was going to study uh, psychology, uh, but uh, but I ended up really liking the the economics course, uh, especially microeconomics in the fall. It was micro in the fall and macro in the spring, and uh, and so by the middle of the middle of the year, I decided I'm going to do this economics thing. Uh, and and early on in your undergraduate career, were you thinking about an academic track then? No, no. Uh, uh, my dad uh, was an entrepreneur. He started a little company when I was two, so I only I only knew of him as a as an entrepreneur. And I and I and I think I had in the back of my mind I would I would go into the world of uh, of business. Um, so no, I did not I did not think about being an academic. Uh, and why don't we bring you into the conversation? Oh, thank you. That was just a wonderful story, Roger. Did you find the education uh, transformational? And if so, in what way? Um, it, it was mainly um, attitudinally transformational, if I can, if I can uh, uh, say that. Um, you know, co coming from a town of 50 um, and... Uh, you know, my parents had not gone to university. Uh, my mother actually graduated a year after me, though. She went back to back to university <laughs> okay. and, and and became and, and and actually got a master's uh, 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 later. Uh, but her graduating class was one year after mine. In any event, coming from a town of fifty and that not background, you you I think naturally assume that out there floating in the ether are people. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I met all these people who came from these places that I'd never heard of called like Andover and Choate, uh, and all these, these, pre you know, the, 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 the fancy, uh, uh, prep schools, you assume there are all these people who are obviously smarter than you, right? They, they just come from a different, a different kind of strata, um, and so the, the biggest and most important learning for me at Harvard was actually, you know, they put their pants on one leg at a time and, and they're, they, they aren't extraordinarily out there some, some uh, place. And if you kind of think hard and kind of work hard at thinking and study and when you're writing an essay, you think really carefully about it, you can actually think as well as they, uh, as they can. Uh, and that that was the most important learning uh, at at Harvard. I I shouldn't I shouldn't just be completely and utterly cowed uh, by by this super race of people who must be who must be that much uh, smarter. No, oh, that's wonderful. And maybe just one more. Um, your dedication is to your father, and you describe him as a superb business mentor. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I say this, and I probably I probably make uh, Harvard Business School mad because I went to Harvard Business School after Harvard College. But I learned from my grade twelve educated father. I don't know somewhere between one and two orders of magnitude more about business than I learned at Harvard Business School. <laughs> uh, and it's just it's true. I don't mean to I say it to be to be particularly mean. Harvard Business School, I think, did as good a job as it could, but it wasn't even close to what I learned at the kitchen table. And, and what I learned at the kitchen table from dad was, was that you know, business isn't kind of 
reducible to simple things. You can't divide everything uh, simply. And so, and so just to give some more color to it and what I, what I mean by that is, so it was a feed manufacturing business. We sold animal feed. So that's why I say we weren't farmers, but we served the farmers. They were, they were the customers of Wallenstein Feed and Supply Limited. Wallenstein being the town, it's big now. It's huge. And when I go back, I just can't believe it's like 200 people, maybe, maybe even 250 now. But anyway, he was incredibly cheap on the business. Like, like he really counted every, every penny. I remember when my brother joined the business and wanted to buy a $5,000 computer, dad was like, oh boy, that's so much money. But, but then, so I asked him one day, but behind the mill, so mill, you know, big, big feed tanks and everything there, there was, he built, had built what I referred to as the Taj Mahal of truck cleaning uh, kind of installations. So these big trucks, you know, these, these, these uh, giant 18 wheel uh, trucks would be, would take the feed uh, uh, to the farm farmers. And they would also bring in feed from uh, bringing the raw materials, et cetera. But the trucks that would head out to the farmers, they would, they would come in from return from, from uh, a delivery, come uh, load up with, uh, with feed and then go into the Taj Mahal and, and, and be clean to absolute perfection. And so I said, dad, so you complain about spending $5,000 on a computer and you got the Taj Mahal out back and you had the trucks kind of waiting to be cleaned in the Taj Mahal, uh, taking up precious, precious time. What is the deal? Like, I don't, I just, I don't get this. And he, and he said, well, he always started it with, well, Roger, well, Roger, here's how I think about it, right? The farmers know that if they're, and, and we mainly served, uh, it, it was uh, poultry farming, so mainly chicken feed, <laughs> we, we sold. He said, the farmers know that if the chickens miss one feeding, uh, uh, they're thrown off their growth trajectory for actually much of their life, their relatively relatively short short life. So that's a disaster for 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 the farmers, and so they need to have complete confidence that Wallenstein Feed and Supply is going to always deliver. They won't get a call from Wallenstein Feed and Supply saying, "Oh, the truck broke down, and we'll send it tomorrow." Right? And so the best way to signal that, other than to tell them that is to always show up with these incredibly fresh, clean looking trucks, because that'll give them the confidence that Wallenstein Feed and Supply cares about, uh, about this quality. They take care of their trucks. They're not gonna get phone calls uh, uh, about that. And I'm like thinking, okay, so I get it. I get the Taj Mahal, I get the Taj Mahal, but the deeper message is, you know, this, operational issue is tied to the, the, the image and reputation of Wallenstein Feed and Supply, which is motivated by the, the psychological needs for safety on the part of the, of the customers. So how, how complex a chain of reasoning is that? I mean, it's not like absolute rocket science, but it's it's pretty darn complicated. So I, so, and I learned, you know, I learned from there, not in a marketing class in, in Harvard business uh, school about s signals of value, like real value. And then signals of the, of, of the, of the real value. I learned, or I learned that even if you're trying to be incredibly cost-effective, you spend like crazy on other things, all these lessons that, that are very sophisticated lessons. And I can't tell you how many of those, I got. I got, never got told anything. By the way, he would. He would never actually volunteer anything. Uh, but if I asked, I got answers. 
and the answers always taught me uh, an enormous amount. I'll just oh, give you another great. one, just uh, just for fun. Here's yeah, another one. Please. Here's another one. A system dynamics uh, uh, thing. So, uh, in its now sixty-ish year, I guess sixty-two year history, Wallenstein Feed and Supply has never once sold uh, a, a ton of feed off of the published at, at a price other than what's on the published price list. So, on a sales call, the 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 Wallenstein Feed and Supply salesman. Uh, takes the price list and hands it to the farmer at the start of it just to say here's the price list and the price list would have all the kinds of feeds and then volumes so if you ordered you know 10 tons or 20 tons you get a better price than you ordered one ton and that was all transparent right it just had li literally volume type of feed here's the price list and I said dad dad like but what if somebody comes in and really wants a customer and undercuts you on that uh, that customer why is it so so important to have uh, this price list that you never deviate from. And he says, what does he say? Well, Roger, <laughs> <laughs> well, Roger, here's the deal, right? We wanna sell on the quality of our feed and how much feed conversion they're gonna get, a conversion of, to meat of, of, of from, from feed and our delivery and our, and our support on, on uh, animal health and all of that. Uh, and if the farmer, thinks actually it's important for him or her, mainly him, to haggle on price for most of the sales call. We won't be able to have any time spent on the stuff we really want to spend time on. If instead the farmer knows that there is no such thing as haggling, that is the price, it's been the price for 60 years and nothing will change that, we can spend the entire call talking about the things that we, we want to talk about. And you know what, Roger, we've got the lowest cost position in the industry, you know, because as you've pointed out, I am cheap. Uh, and, and so if somebody undercuts us on price, we know that they're selling below their cost. And the only way they can do that to this farmer is to sell at an extraordinary price to some other farmer. Our job is not to try and convince that farmer to buy us versus, versus them. They should buy that other person because they're losing money money on it. Our job is to find the, the customer that they're overcharging and go give them the price list, which will be, which will be a win. How about that? That's pretty good. <laughs> Roger, let me uh, just remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm joined by Anne Greenhall. And our guest today is Roger Martin, Professor Emeritus at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, and author of When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. Um, Roger, I thought you were going to remind the authors that that's what we we're going to talk about, not, 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 not my stories. But that's very, uh, Roger, I have a feeling that they're all going to bridge together. Exactly. Right? I, I, it's a tapestry we're weaving here. So, <laughs> Here's here's maybe the the question that will um, uh, you know bring us to the book. As you think about these lessons that um, you know really came out of your father's wisdom and his experience with the feed business, um, and then you think about your own educational track, and 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 so we have the, these two parallels. Now, you know, fast forwarding certainly within your career. You serve as, as the dean um, uh, at the Rotman School. How did this background and this education inform the way you led an educational institution? 
Sure. Well, I mean, it, it was a strange thing to be a, a, a dean. I, I went in with a bunch of uh, buddies from business school, built a big uh, strategy consulting firm. And so I was a business guy. I was not uh, an academic and the president of University of Toronto, who was on a board that I had having to consult to, decided I should be a dean and talked me into it. Um, so I arrived as a, as a dean without one minute of academic uh, experience. Um, but I didn't, as, as just most things in life, it didn't let that stop, stop me. But it informed me, to answer your question, Jeff, I knew from my, my father and my mother, actually, uh, in, in, different, in different ways, uh, that, uh, that this reductionist way of, of understanding business, which I had been taught, at Harvard Business School, like all other business schools, we're going to teach you marketing as if, as if uh, you know, accounting, tax, finance doesn't exist. Then we're te- going to teach you, uh, uh, you know, accounting as if marketing, operations, HR doesn't exist. Then we're going to teach you HR as, as these things don't exist. So that that is that is modern business education. The idea implicitly is you will fit all that together. You know, mm-hmm. no problem. You'll fit all that together. They don't point out that the fitting it all together part is absolutely the hardest part. And when we're just not even going to, not even going to address that, let alone teach you anything in it, that, that is, that is modern uh, business education. So I said, that's silly. And we will make uh, the Rotman school stand for this concept of integrative thinking that, that, uh, and I'd done all this work on studying leaders to, to figure out how, how they actually, how they actually thought. So that was what I brought to mm-hmm. uh, to uh, uh, running the Rotman School is to is to say we're going to actually teach them. And I remember teach teach them how to put it all together. And I remember you know Peter Drucker really liked. He was very kind kind to me. He really liked what I was doing. He you know we spoke uh, the Rotman School and said you know what. What Roger Martin is doing, maybe the most important thing going on in business education, which is a, which is like a nice and nice endorsement. But he said, you know, there are no marketing problems, there are no tax problems, there are no accounting problems, there are only business problems. And that was the that was the philosophy of of the of the school. We will teach the hardest thing uh, because the world has too few business people who can put the pieces together. Um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it, unfortunately, there are, you know there's an almost unlimited supply now of let's just say MBA, MBAs, you know, edu- MBA educated people who are who know lots about marketing and nothing about how to connect that to anything else. We have lots of people who know finance and, and not how yeah. to connect that. We know very few who can put all those pieces together. And they're considered these, these you know, kind of magical leaders who will pay any amount of money to, to run, run our company. We don't know how they got there. That's a mystery. We just know that they can do this thing. And so we want one of those, those people and we'll pay them whatever they, they want. And then they, and then they have all of these, these specialists working for them. I said, well, how's, how about this? How about we create a systematic way of producing those integrative thinkers? And, and so, Roger, when, when you think about integrative thinking and think about um, the system in which these businesses exist, right, the, the new book is thinking about democratic capitalism. And, mm-hmm. and what is it, as, as we really turn our attention to the new book, 
what is it that you want business leaders, organizational leaders to recognize about the system in which they're operating? Yeah, the, what I want them to recognize is that it is not a, um, a machine, right? Like, so the metaphor, I would argue the metaphor of the, both the economy and businesses in it is that they're a machine, kind of like a car. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's a complicated machine. It's not a simple machine. Nobody's sort of saying it's like this totally simple machine. It's a complicated machine, but it has a bunch of subsystems and you can put people in charge of optimizing each subsystem. And then you just add it up and voila, you've got uh, what, what you want. Um, I make the argument in the, in the, in the book that that's taking us down a path of this extreme reductionism. Uh, and we are, we are operating the machine in a way that produces the opposite results of what we want. And that a better metaphor is as a complex adaptive system. So it's, it's a system. You can't break it into little parts. Uh, it's complex, i.e. it's really hard to tell what causes what exactly. Uh, and it's adaptive. You know, once you set it up in a certain way, all the players in it adapt to the, the, this complex system and they change it, which of course makes it even harder uh, to understand. And you can probably under, you know, draw the line between the stories I tell about my, about my dad and that, which is, I would, I would argue retrospectively now that he viewed his business as a complex adaptive system. And he had to think really hard about the, the, the relationship between things. He thought a lot about adaptive behavior, right? If we do this, farmers will spend the entire sales call haggling and we'll get, we'll get nowhere. That's adaptation that he was, he was saying, I would like to try my best to set up the system so that we don't get that negative adaptation. We get a positive adaptation, which is we get to talk the entire time about things that are, we think are important to, uh, to talk about. So, so when we take a, a system that truly is a complex adaptive system and treat it as a perfectible machine, we start doing things that, that just have, you know, bad effects. So we say, we say, here's the model that'll enable us to think about this part of the machine. Right? And then we can do things like come up with simple rules, like, you know what we should be doing is making each part of the machine as absolutely efficient as it possibly can be. Right? And no amount of efficiency is too much because if we can make this perfect, right, we can find out like the physical perfect maximums of this and we'll push to that, then that'll end up being better uh, for us. The results will be better. Um, and, and, you know, for a time, I would argue that push to say, we'll break the economy into pieces uh, and optimize each piece worked pretty well. I, I argue in the book that it worked pretty well for 200 years, 1776 to 1976. And what do I mean by pretty well? For me, an important measure of, of, of a democratic capitalist system is that the median family who I sort of say metaphorically is kind of the swing voter, right? Mm -hmm. Because 51% of people have to vote for the, the, the system that the, uh, to continue the system that we're using. So it may not be the median family, but people in that band around the median family, if they're moving forward smartly economically, they 
are more inclined to say, I will vote for that economic system, right? It can make kind of sense. If they're not doing well, they may say, yeah, I don't know, maybe, yeah, like maybe, but maybe, maybe something else would be better. For 200 years, the American median family, as best we can tell early on, we didn't have as good statistics, but you can kind of in, 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 infer it. They moved along very smartly. And, and ever since we really rigorously uh, measured it all the way up to 1970, uh, 1976, 2.4% compound annual increase, uh, real increase in, in median family income was what we saw. Why does that matter? That means doubling every 30 years. So doubling kind of every generation. So you could, as a median family, you could, you could safely assume that my children are going to be twice as well off, like twice as well off. Like that's a lot <laughs> better, 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 uh, better off. Roger is Professor Emeritus at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and one of the world's leading management thinkers. And why don't you get us back into the conversation? You were talking about how a democratic capitalism was working for families uh, of meat, you know, just the ordinary family. And you said that for about 200 years till 1976, you know, ordinary families could expect that their children would maybe have twice as much earning power as they had had. So tell us, you know, pick up that thread. What happened 1976 onward? How did this go awry? Yeah. So, you know, as we celebrated, funnily enough, as we celebrated our bicentenary, um, something changed. And since then, that median family income has been increasing at a quarter the rate, 0.6 of 1% rather than 2.4%, which has the implication of doubling family income every century. Ooh. Three, th yeah, ooh is, is that, and when I saw it, and that was my reaction, yeah. ooh, uh, it, it takes three plus generations to do what previously took one generation. And that doesn't show up in the average numbers, right? Because the average numbers are skewed by high income earners. So, so if you look at it, what's happened is the uh, much, much greater proportion of economic growth, the benefits of economic growth are going to the top 1%, the top 0.1 of 1%, the 0.01 of 1%. They're taking the, the lion's share of, of that. And of course, I'm not, I'm not sort of you know, anti people doing doing well when they when they do something good economically. It's just here's the problem. The problem is for democratic capitalism to work, that median family has to say it works for me. That was unequivocal for two hundred years, and it isn't anymore. Um, and we're having a stagnation of that, and that's why I think. You know, there's many elements of the electorate that are that are discouraged and disappointed. That is why you know the the younger uh, voters are saying, "Well, I'd think about socialism." We didn't have that before, and it made sense. Why would they think about socialism when, when democratic capitalism was producing such good results? Now they're thinking about it, and that's that's in the core reason for for writing the book is to say. We have to understand why this is happening and then figure out what we can do differently. Okay. And why I think it's happening, Anne, is because, because this, this 
model of the economy as a perfectible machine that is perfectible by the application of ever more efficiency, ever more pressure to create more efficiency is changing the distribution of outcomes. So the distribution of outcomes, if you think, uh, if you think about it, and you're in Philadelphia, so you, you can think about bills there because you got the one, uh, the, the outcomes tend to be more bell-shaped, right? Think what we think, we always think we have a very large middle class. What's that? That's the hump in the middle of the bell. And then the, the one edge, the tail is, is richer families. The other tail is poorer families, but there's a big cluster in the middle. Um, for 200 years, I would argue what we had is something that was kind of bell-shaped. It wasn't perfectly bell-shaped, but that's not a bad metaphor for it. And that bell kept moving to higher and higher incomes, right? So rich people did get richer, middle class moved up, doubled every generation, poor people got less poor. And we had this system that really kind of, I think, was working ever better. Was it perfect? No, there's no perfection is impossible. Uh, but we had a system where we taxed that rich tail to a much greater extent in order to help fund programs and help uh, leg up for, for the people who are in the poor tail so that we hopefully had social mobility and social mobility was actually uh, in, on the increase in the 50s and, and, and 60s as, as we had, as we had uh, hoped. It turns out that when you take a system like that and apply ever more pressure for ever greater efficiency, it can turn into a different distribution of outcomes. And the distribution of outcomes that it turns to is, is, is something that's known, it's, it's named after an Italian uh, economist, Wilfredo Pareto, who noted that, that around the, uh, in late uh, uh, 1800s, when he did the study, 20% of Italian families owned 80% of the land of, of Italy. That's why, what the Pareto, the Pareto distribution is generally referred to as the 80-20 rule. Um, so that distribution, if you think about it, it looks more like a ski slope, right? So, so lots of people are, are in the part that's the high sli uh, ski slope. And then, it, then there's a long, long tail with very few people doing, doing really well. We're pushing down the middle of the bell. Think about putting your hand on top of the freedom bell, <laughs> pushing down, squashing it uh, so, that, so that it turns out that most people get pushed to the low end and a few people to the high end. That's the problem. In a, in a nutshell, that is the problem. The way we're operating the economy is accidentally. I do not believe, I, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think that there's somebody in the background pulling the levers to, to try and produce uh, uh, that. It's we're inadvertently uh, uh, producing uh, that. And there's going to be more of it because unlike things that are shaped like, like uh, your bell, uh, that kind of distribution tends to get more stable over time and look more like that over time. Pareto distributions are inclined, not always, but they're inclined to get more and more extreme, which is what we're seeing. So it's not like the, the, the rich are, are, have stopped now. They got really, really, really rich and now they're, no, no, they're, they're getting richer and richer and richer and median families are, are stagnating. Oh. I, can you, maybe if I can, this is a uh, basic question, but can you help me understand 
why this is an economic problem and more than a political problem? Well, I'm not sure I would agree with that, with, with that. So I think it's a problem that exists right at the intersection of politics and, 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 uh, and economics, right? Because I mean, the, the income distribution in China isn't uh, a hell of a lot different than, than this distribution, right? Um, there, are, there are a whole, whole lot of poor people and some insanely rich people, but that's fine, right? Because it's totalitarian, right? So you don't need 51% of people uh, uh, to support uh, the, the system. So it, it is totalitarian capitalism, right? Um, and the problem for America is we cherish, I cherish, I think you cherish, I think almost mm -hmm. the idea of a democracy, uh, right? I don't know how many, you know, Americans would willingly give up their US citizenship and, and move to China, yeah. right? I don't want to bash China much, but that that's just not a system that that uh, that that many Americans uh, uh, support. So that's the problem. The problem is, I I think we can continue. We if if there weren't political unrest, we could continue, you know, growing the economy and 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 having the 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 rich tail get even richer for quite some time. But I think what we're seeing now out on this, uh, you know, in in all across America is more people saying, I don't know if this works. I don't know if this works. And the youth saying socialism, wouldn't that be a, wouldn't that be a, a, a cool thing to, uh, to try? So it's the intersection that I am, that I'm most worried about. Thank you. Very good. Yeah. Let, let me jump in and remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm here today with Ann Greenhall and our guest, who is Roger Martin, Professor Emeritus at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and author of When More is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. So, Roger, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the dominant model of business and, and the economy as an efficient machine, or at least a machine striving for efficiency. Yeah. Um, and, and you've argued for more of a view uh, of a complex adaptive system. Can you talk a little bit, I mean, in the book, you're recommending that we temper our view of the efficient machine by adding resilience to the mix. And, and can you talk a little bit about the role of resilience, both for the business as well as the economy. Yes, uh, and you've got it absolutely right. Uh, which, which is, which is, I'm not calling for forgetting about efficiency. You know, efficiency has gotten us a long way, but just having a sense of balancing that with with resilience. The the idea that you know a resilient system is one that can bounce back from uh, from adversity, bounce back from some negative impact on it. And has a and a resilient system has a sense of how can this system last and prosper, and so if we just if we just had had that kind of balance, and what that means to me is 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 actually we've got to balance some some things that that contribute to that. So instead of saying we want 
to keep maximal pressure on everything. So we're going to open trade completely to have pressure on industries. We're going to deregulate to have more players uh, competing uh, uh, with with uh, one another. We're going to allow mergers uh, to make companies more more uh, efficient. All of those things that are upset. We're going to we're going to cut staffing down and labor costs uh, uh, down. We're going to outsource uh, all jobs to the lowest cost. All of that is pressure to, to, for more efficiency. We need to balance that with friction. You know, friction, friction is a, is a, 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 is a good thing, right? We, we put governors on, on cars to make sure they, they don't go so fast. We put slack into systems so that, so that when there is a, in a downtick in something, it, we don't shut down the factory or shut down the line because we've, we've got, we've got some uh, slack capacity. We need to just say, while we need pressure for performance, we need to have friction as well to make sure that we that we're more resilient. Um, instead of saying we have to strive for perfection, that's this sort of efficient. We can be so efficient that we be perfectly efficient. We should say no. We're just trying to improve things. Like in a complex adaptive system, there is no perfection. Right. So. That's really interesting, Roger. The, you know, one of the ways that success gets measured with, within this system, and, and we were talking about it in terms of the average American family, but when we think about firms, um, it, it's often from a lens of wealth creation and profitability. Um, I, I, one of the arguments that you make is that we really need to expand our measurements. Absolutely. And, and, and so how can how can we reframe for the business leader what what success looks like um, for the organization? Sure. So you're 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 aiming at something that that's you know, near and dear to my heart. And I think so important for business leaders. We talked ourselves in and it, it started in 1970 with the famous Milton Friedman, New York Times magazine piece, The Business of Business is Business, where he argued for a, a single objective function. That got picked up and actually kind of won the day completely so that you're right. Right now, people think that is the yardstick, shareholder value or, or profitability so that, you know, your price earnings ratio will end up with the, the shareholder value you want. And that that's, I, I focus on, on, on things that actually are against human nature. I ask people, even business executives, is that how you uh, uh, run your life? You're trying to maximize one thing, right? Don't you don't you sort of think about well, I have to work hard and be a good CEO, but I have to be a good father or mother and a good husband or wife. Uh, I have to serve my community. So, why is it that the way you live your life should not be reflected at all? You should operate your business in a completely foreign way to that. But it's crazy. But it won the day, uh, and again, is still taught at business schools. Um, that this sort of single maximizing thing. And what happens? What happens? The, the people have studied this, uh, and, and I think it's interesting. Is is the measurement gets becomes thought of as the goal, right? So the goal is is to make sure shareholders uh, do do well, and we're thinking first and foremost about about the shareholders. But then the measurement, which is our stock price today, is considered good for shareholders, right? 
even though stock prices, as we all know, go all over the place, like really when, when our share, share went down four bucks because the market sold off, our shareholders were $4 kind of less well off. No, because the next day it goes back up the, the, the $4. So, so in a complex adaptive system in particular, you are helped enormously by saying, I need to have a number of things that I am trying to balance. So I give the example of Southwest Airlines. Southwest Airlines wants to be the lowest cost airline. They say this, they want to be the lowest cost airline, highest employee satisfaction airline, highest customer satisfaction airline, and most profitable airline in America. If you have those four things, you can't, you don't do this thing called surrogation, which is to say, which is to say low cost is Southwest, right? Because you say, no, no, we got these other three things. So it, it, it isn't, it's a mix of those. And it also gives you this hard task, right? How can we be low cost and highest employee satisfaction? Because the easiest way to do low cost, right, is to pay, you know, bust the unions, uh, kind of uh, have dual wage uh, uh, scale, uh, pay the lowest uh, possible. That would be easy. But if you say, and, and then all the all your employees hate you with a burning passion. So, oops, that doesn't work. So we got to be more clever. And of course, and, so it comes up with a more clever way to do it. You know, and, and Roger, one of the interesting things connecting back to the, the first half of the show here is you also can't break that set of goals up and assign the first goal low cost to this division and the next goal to the other division. It requires the integrative thinking that we were talking about in the first half of the show. Abs absolutely. And, and I can't tell you how many times, unfortunately, companies do that. They say, they say to the, the, the customer service unit, your job, you have to make customer service scores as high as possible. And then they turn over to the, to the labor cost per person and say, you got to get our labor costs down as, as much as possible. And so they do things over in labor costs that make it impossible for the, the, the customer service people uh, uh, to do it. And I tell the story in the book of Four Seasons where Izzy Sharp, the legendary founder of now the world's best, most successful on virtually every, every criteria luxury hotel chain, he said, you know what? We want to treat the guests in this particular way. There's only one way that's going to happen. If we treat our employees the way we want them to treat our guests. And he said, and he, and he laughs and says, it wasn't particularly original. I think somebody else came up with the golden rule, right? Um, but <laughs> but, but that's, that's a case where reductionism is actually maybe... Uh, <laughs> Yes, but it was the, the, the connection. It's your point, Jeff, is he closely connected a bunch of HR policies to the, yeah. the, the customer service uh, side. And interesting enough, Four Seasons has no guest service, guest experience uh, um, VP or, or organization. Why? It's everybody's job. Again, very, very, uh, very holistic. So, 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 absolutely. One, one of the one of the recommendations, uh, Jeff, is always, always have multiple measurements to avoid this trap of of surrogation, as it, as it as it's uh, called, and even go with with uh, internally conflictual ones that force you, like Southwest, to be more to be more clever. 
you pay your employees more. Southwest pays them more as the low-cost carrier. How do you do that? You figure out how you need fewer person hours per passenger seat mile by being clever, uh, and then you can do both. You can have happy customers, happy employees, and profit, and and that it's doable. That's the that's the thing, Jeff and Ann. That 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 I, I, it is just so doable to do it better. We just teach people, unfortunately, to do something else, and so they don't even try. And you get the Herb Kellehers and the and and the Izzy Izzy uh, Sharps of of the world trying you see it different yeah they see it differently they all you know i could make an argument that all they did was try <laughs> and and they're massively successful case studies yeah. i mean the interesting thing there's this whole thing yeah <laughs> so the the you know roger as we wind the show up here um i think the thing i appreciate about the book is is it's not a choice, right? It, it's a both and argument where, where we're really adapting and we're building upon um, a system with, which, you know, surely is seeing some strain. So Roger, we're just so happy um, to have spent this hour with you. And um, how can our listeners learn more about your work um, and find the book? Well, uh, they they can find it on uh, on Amazon or any any in any bookstore. Um, and uh, learning more about my work, I uh, you know some some number of years ago, somebody told me, "Hey, you write so much, Roger. It's hard for people to find it all. Uh, you should organize it." So it's all organized uh, on my website, www.rogerlmartin.com. My middle initial is L for Lloyd, my father. So don't forget the uh, don't forget the L, uh, and it's organized by by uh, category. You'll find all the stuff about the book under under the democratic capitalism uh, tab, but I do stuff on strategy and on, on design uh, and you'll find it all there. And so uh, I hope you enjoy well, it. Yeah, Roger, thank you so much. Um, thank uh, you. Incredibly interesting conversation. I love that we came full circle and ended with your middle initial, which brought your father back into the conversation. Um, and thanks for being with me here today. Oh, my pleasure it was great. Wonderful to talk with you, Roger. It was my pleasure. My pleasure. All right. So to our listeners, thank you all so much for joining us for this really interesting conversation. Uh, if you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at SXM Business. Once again, a special thank you to our guest, Roger Martin. I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Jeff Klein, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 